Hello and welcome to this new podcast from the Informa Pharma Intelligence Asia Pacific Insights team. My name is Ian Haydock, APAC Editor-in-Chief, and with me today are Brian Yang, our Managing Editor in Beijing, Dexter Yan, our Senior Reporter in Shanghai, Andrew Gangerdi, Executive Editor in Mumbai, Viva Ravi, Sub-Editor in Mumbai, and Jungwon Shin, our Senior Reporter in Seoul. So today we're going to talk around some of the key pharma industry themes to emerge in our respective regional markets in recent months, the reasons behind those and the significance for the pharma industry. And we'll also touch on some things to look out for as we enter the new year. It remains to be seen how the emerging Omicron coronavirus variant may affect the industry landscape. Multiple vaccine firms are already working to address it, But for now, let's dive into some overviews on where we stand in the individual markets. So let's start with China and Brian and Dexter, over to you to kick off. Hello, Nihao. This is Brian Yang. I'm based in Beijing, China. I cover the regulatory and commercial aspects for the pharma and healthcare industry in China. Today with me is Dexter, who's based in Shanghai. First, let me uh, help you to understand China's healthcare market, who is fast changing and fast moving in the last year also. As we all know, China as a world's second economy is fast moving away from reform and open policy to a new policy, which is called due circulation. What is this due circulation is all about? In its 14th five-year plan, 2020 to 2025, the Chinese Communist Party, led by President Xi Jinping, outlined a new and ambitious goal, which is to moving the Chinese economy, who used to be based on the export, and to be the world's factory, to a new policy, a new direction, which is more reliant on domestic consumption will reduce export-driven productions. That fast-moving policy shift has people worry about. For example, many multinational companies have operated in China for many decades. Are those companies will not be welcomed any longer in China? And what opportunities and risks lay in the new drastic policy shift. Today, I'm going to talk to you and introduce some aspects and the potential impact of this new policy to the healthcare and the pharma industry and the sector. Why this policy is important and what's about this policy? First, this policy is a direct response to widespread global economic downturn caused by the pandemic and also U.S.-China bilateral trade tensions. In the past two years, under the U.S. previous president, the trade tensions between the two largest economies have have been very low and very tense. So in response to this tense uh, tense relationships and the trade disputes, the Chinese government has going to has changed its direction 
to rely more on driving up supply-side demand, encouraging domestic collaboration, and reduce impact from international economic risks. However, this policy is not going to change what has been doing in China, which is to cut prices for drugs and the medical devices. In the meantime, to innovate and to produce more innovative drugs to the market. In that case, we are going to see many aspects to the healthcare in sector. So what are some implications of the dual circulation policy for health sector? Thanks, Dexter. I think the first uh, impact for the healthcare sector is to more localization in China. For example, some multinational companies like Roche has started producing its medical devices such as diagnostics locally in Suzhou, China. And also, the Swiss drug company has also opened its drug innovation center in Shanghai. In the meantime, the company also is going to open an innovation accelerator in the next quarter, according to the uh, board member. So one aspect for companies such as Roche to move more localization, particularly for supply chain or manufacturing in China. Second aspect is maybe to launch new product, innovative products in China as its first launch market. One example is US company Fibrogen, who partners with AstraZeneca to launch its anemia drug Rosa Sustit in China. It's the first global launch. So, and we all see many more Chinese companies are out licensing their innovative drugs to US drug makers. Another aspect I would say is to really expand the market access. Because in China, the volume-based price cutting scheme has drastically lowered the drug prices. Many multinational companies say those price levels are, are not sustainable to operate in China. In order for this new and innovative drugs to be available in China, we need innovative insurance solutions and such as additional insurance. One company executive said, we work with the government with additional insurance, not just lower the drug prices. We welcome and we work together to make innovation accessible through innovative insurance schemes, the executive said. So really, it's all about how the drug be more accessible and how the innovative products can be affordable in China. This is a, such, this is a top solution and top issue and also an opportunity for many health companies to ponder upon. 
And lastly, I want to emphasize this uh, circulation, due circulation policy is data protection. With all, we all know data protection is very interesting and very timely because around the world, all governments are moved to protect the privacy and the data. In China, this data protection, protection is a particularly thorny issue. China has required and issued multiple regulations such as uh, data protection law and the, and the national security law as well as other regulations. The Beijing has required all data of genetic information, including blood samples and genomic information to be collected, stored and processed inside China. Export of such data outside China requires additional administrative approvals, which is time consuming and costly. Recent rules, one after another, further required foreign entities establish designated agencies or representatives in China to handle personal information protection related matters. The scope of personal in information is really broad and many companies such as Yahoo and LinkedIn have decided to exit the market altogether based these new rules and regulations. For health players, how to conduct clinical trials in China and how to make China a part of their global multi-center study is crucial and has to put has taken the data protection into considerations. With that, I would close my podcasting introduction with three points. One is to the dual circulation is going to impact health sector profoundly and the healthcare sector needs to localize in China further. Secondly, in order to make innovative products more accessible and affordable in China, how to reform and re-innovate the insurance company is very key issue to consider. Lastly, data protection is huge issue and a very sensitive issue in China and the companies how to deal with it need to have a strategy that is uh, uh, more uh, holistic and also uh, fitting to their own development strategies and long-term goals in China as uh, the company and the country is fast innovating and fast moving to a due circulation and the domestic market heavy uh, economy in the future uh, to go. With that, I'd like to ask Dexter, our Shanghai-based senior writer, some questions about pricing and collaboration. First, Dexter, why are people so concerned about the pricing of innovative drugs in China? Since 2018, people tend to pay more attention to the pricing issue in the fourth quarter because some qualified pharmaceutical companies will take part in an annual negotiation over innovative drugs with the National Healthcare Security Administration, China's top payer for healthcare services. The outcome of the negotiation will decide whether these drugs will be included in the national reimbursement drug list, and if so, how much of a discount the drug makers will give in exchange for wider access to China's vast public hospital system in the next two years. 
Okay, are there any changes in this year's pricing? This year's negotiation was held in mid-November. So far, the final results have not come out yet. Although official figures are still not available, industry insiders believe that the discounts will not be as big as those from 2018 to 2020, which averaged more than 50%. People may still remember that in last year's round of negotiation, Jiangsu Henry Medicine reduced the price of its anti-PD-1 antibody by 85%, but such slump in price should not have happened again. Wow, 85%. So why are the reasons behind this new trend? The reasons may be twofold. First, the National Healthcare Security Administration has abandoned its previous negotiation strategy of low price first. Over the past few years, the government agency has become a sensation and it once reportedly asked one company to reduce price by a further one cent on top of a final discount. However, low price doesn't seem to be its top priority for this year. The government agency has showed some signs in this year's two rounds of volume-based procurements of generic drugs in June and November. Second, the pharmaceutical companies have grown hesitant to wage price war against each other in the negotiation. Because some companies have not benefited from the reimbursement drug listing as they previously anticipated. So what are this uh, going to impact the pharma sector in the future? The 2022 version of the national reimbursement drug list will integrate this year's negotiation outcomes and be implemented early next year. So the new pricing of innovative drugs will immediately change the competitive landscape in 2022, and part of the effects will remain through 2023. Dexter, you also mentioned in your uh, answers about domestic collaboration. I think domestic collaboration is really going up significantly in 2020 and 2021. So during 2021, some Chinese companies are really signing multi-million dollar deals. So what will they probably do if they can't fund foreign buyers for their assets? Yes, it's true that some Chinese biotechs have sold ex-China rights to their drug candidates for big bucks in the past 11 months, such as Beijing to Novartis at the year beginning and Renjin to Cgen in August. But such deals depend on the overseas market demands for Chinese developed assets, and foreign partners tend to be picky. So Chinese biotechs can look inward to find domestic partners if they want to reach out licensing deal. What are those some companies? There have been quite a lot of such companies. For example, Shanghai-based Gene Fleet Therapeutics in September sold the Great China Rise to its KRAS G12C inhibitor to the more established Hong Kong-listed Innovant Biologics. Moreover, Genefleet has granted Innovant an option to acquire the global rights to the drug candidate. The global option is rarely seen in such deals between Chinese biotechs, which means that the licensor is set to give up on its own commercialization effort either in or outside of China. In another deal in July, Hong Kong listed Ascentage Pharma out-licensed the China rise to a third-generation BCR-ABL tyrosine kinase inhibitor to innovate. 
The two companies have also agreed to co-develop Ascentage's BCL2 inhibitor. In return, Ascentage has received upfront payment and investment in its equities by Innovant. So do you think the trend will continue? It remains to be seen, but smaller Chinese biotechs are more likely to run into financial difficulties than are their larger and more established peers during the past months. Firstly, on the whole, biotech investor sentiment has apparently fallen from the peak. Secondly, it has become increasingly costly to advance drug candidates to later stages of clinical trials in China because the clinical resources are highly contested here. If these issues are not settled, gene fleet or Ascentage will not just be an isolated case. Thank you, Dexter. Very interesting observations and examples. Back to you, Yan. Okay, thank you very much, Brian and Dexter. And we're now going to move over to India, where Anju and Viva are going to talk around some of the main issues in that market. So over to you, Anju and Viva. Thanks, Yun. Hello, everyone. I'm Vibha, and I have with me Anju here, who's executive editor APAC, and has over 20 years of experience writing on the pharma industry. Hi, Anju. We've heard from Brian on the change in policy in China to make it more inward-looking. In India, we have a new R&D policy. So what are some of the key triggers for this new India policy push to catalyze innovation? Thanks, Vibha. Yes, it's pretty interesting because uh, the timing for this push is uh, significant. And actually, it's a culmination of multiple factors. And there are signs of a newfound collective resolve in India, which is really encouraging. So as we all know, India has a dominant presence in the generic segment. Uh, it's the pharmacy to the world. Or then as Sanofi's ex-CEO Chris Weibacher recently described, as uh, India having decided to go to the global drug Olympics in the generics business years ago. But the same can't quite be said in the global innovation or the drug discovery space. Though there are several Indian companies that have interesting pipelines and even startups pursuing CAR-T therapies. In fact, close to 12 to 13% of the turnover of India's top-ranked drug firm Sun Pharma comes from innovative products, and that business is growing almost three times faster than Sun's generic and branded generics business. So the signs are pretty good. But there is an increasing realization now that generics alone cannot be the engine of growth. And there are multiple factors for this. There's significant price erosion in top markets like the US, there's competition, there's the vulnerability to imports of APIs and key starting materials from regional neighbors amid geopolitical tensions. And then, of course, there are huge untapped opportunities in the innovation space, which accounts for two thirds of the global pharmaceutical opportunity. But importantly, the pandemic also has been a huge eye opener. If India wasn't able to manufacture and develop COVID vaccines indigenously, we would be staring at a very different scenario today. So there's a push for self-reliance and medicine security. So we now seem to have a concerted thrust via the recent new draft policy to catalyze R&D and innovation in the biopharma and medtech segments. But of course, it's not going to be a short-term story, nor an easy path. The proposed policy itself has a 10-year perspective, 
and building a vibrant ecosystem like in Boston or in the UK, etc., will really need a huge concerted effort. So, Anju, could you tell us a little more, you know, elaborate a little more on the broad contours of the policy and what can industry expect in the days to come? Yeah, sure. So, uh, broadly speaking, the proposed policy is built around three core prongs, strengthening the regulatory framework, incentivizing private and public investments in innovation via a blend of fiscal and non-fiscal measures, and enabling a facilitary ecosystem to propel innovation and cross-sectoral R&D. Now, at a recent conference, India's top leadership and government functionaries indicated that they really intend to press ahead with this on priority. So that's pretty uh, encouraging. Now, some of the key specifics on nuances of the policy include creating a regulatory bias towards innovation, even halving regulatory approval timelines, then cutting process overlaps, establishing a common specific procedure pathway for each class of product, and importantly, something that would be music to uh, industry's ears is enabling a differential pricing environment and approach for innovative products. Now, the agenda also includes plans to build in a policy along the lines of the US Baydol Act to help move academic discoveries into the commercial landscape. I'd particularly like to highlight a bit of uh, you know, commentary from a top government functionary recently who actually said that regulatory hoops have been developed not so much to improve regulation alone, but also the wrong assumption that more regulation somehow improves the quality of regulation. And the pandemic, the official said, has allowed a re-examination of that. And we now need to go to a situation where highest quality regulations, safety, privacy, rigor, and science are combined with speed, and that, he said, is eminently feasible. So those are interesting comments. Besides, the Indian industry, I'm sure, you know, they clearly see the writing on the wall, and CEOs of almost all top Indian drug makers realize that accelerating innovation is no longer an option. Or as Zydus Cadillac's chairman Pankaj Patel said, it's innovate or perish. But for that, we also need to develop an innovation ecosystem, and that will require funding, support, developing a research talent pool. There were some suggestions of a thousand talents effort, allow what was done in China, a high quality research environment by anchor institutes collaborating with industry, the kind we've seen in successful biopharma clusters in the US and UK. But it's also important for India to perhaps identify niches where it will vie for innovation excellence because the innovation space itself is competitive and increasingly crowded. For example, there were 1,000 new biotechs formed just last year. I'd also like to just touch upon a long-standing industry grouse is about how VCs behave like bankers when it comes to Indian biopharma. This is a dig at their risk-averse approach, as was called out by Biocon chairperson Kiran Mazumdar Shaw recently. So clearly there's a lot of work to be done to actually develop a vibrant innovation ecosystem. If we look at our Asian neighbors, Korea, China, and Singapore, it's very much doable and the rewards are rich. Uh, so uh, thanks Viba for that. Uh, with that, I'd like to just shift to the vaccine segment where uh, India has seen a lot of innovation, at-risk production, etc. So, Vibha, could you take us through the role of the public and private players in India's vaccine story? 
Yeah, sure, Anju. So uh, I would like to, as they say, you know, begin at the beginning, kind of. So it's, India's had an interesting history for vaccines. The public sector or government-owned companies have been pioneers of India's vaccines journey. And uh, the history of vaccine production began with the setting up of the Hafkin Institute in 1899. So between 1900 to 1930, several other government-owned institutes came up, including the Central Research Institute. And it was only in the 1950s that privately owned firms began building vaccine manufacturing capacities. In 1966, Serum Institute was established. Since then, there has been a gradual creeping up of the private sector's hold on vaccine manufacturing. While government-owned companies ruled roost till older vaccines were in use, like those for polio, and as more diseases like hepatitis B were included in immunization programs across the world, and uh, polyvalent vaccines became the norm, their share of the vaccine market has dropped. The turning point for the private sector was when the WHO began pre-qualifying facilities that could supply to immunization programs. As several government-owned units failed to meet GMP standards, a vacuum was created, which private companies like Serum, Panacea, Zydus Cadilla, and later Bharat Biotech were quick to fill up. With the disappearance of old diseases like smallpox and polio and addition of new antigens and more potent heat-stable and freeze-dried versions of vaccines being made with sophisticated technologies, public sector companies found themselves redundant. They couldn't invest as much or take development and partnering decisions as quickly as the private players could. And the tables have now turned. According to official statistics, there were nearly 19 vaccine manufacturing units in public sector and 12 in private sector in 1971. Today, it's only a handful of government-owned units, including the CRI I spoke about earlier, Bharat Immunologicals, and Hafkin Biopharma. A state-of-the-art integrated vaccine complex was constructed in Tamil Nadu, but it has been lying idle since its inauguration in 2016. Today, Serum Institute is the world's largest producer of vaccines by volume. Private companies have grown by leaps and bounds, supplying vaccines for immunization programs across the world. In fact, over 40% of global vaccine supply is provided by Indian manufacturers, primarily from the private sector. Now, as we all know, India's successful COVID-19 immunization program has so far rested solely on the shoulders of Serum Institute and Bharat Biotech. While Serum was quick on the draw and partnered with the University of Oxford and AstraZeneca to produce Covishield, Bharat Biotech collaborated with the Indian Council of Medical Research to make India's first indigenous COVID vaccine against the disease. COVID-19 has seen some new players emerge and it is catalyzing development and growth of vaccine companies in India. Thanks, Vibha. Those were some fascinating milestones around the history of vaccine uh, development in India. And uh, as we also know, innovation and developing vaccines is clearly a team sport. So all constituents are equally important. So if I can just ask you, what are some of the key changes driven by COVID in the vaccine segment? Sure, Anju. So the Indian government has reacted quite proactively developing test kits and uh, PPE kits, etc. 
But when it came to vaccines, it, it did take a bit of time for the government to act on it. As I said earlier, Serum acted quickly and set up this partnership which enabled India to have the vaccines it needed. Now, India's success story in vaccines has been driven both by domestic manufacturing sufficiency and external partnerships. So when COVID struck, the story was no different. There were collaborations earlier as well, but the disease just accelerated the pace at those who invented COVID-19 vaccines looked for manufacturing partners. So this has led to over 20 COVID-19 vaccines that are either in the market in India or in the clinic in India. Serum itself has multiple tie-ups, for example, with Novavax, Podagenics, Spy Biotech, while Bharat Biotech is developing a nasal vaccine, which will be a big technological achievement for the company. The vaccine industry has not just saved India from an apocalypse, but it has proved its worth in meeting global requirements as well. However, as the world is becoming more inward-looking and countries are understandably looking to fortify their manufacturing capabilities in essential drugs and vaccines, Indian companies are at a crossroad. It's time for the next phase of investment and development, else they face the possibility of being overtaken by other companies in Asia or elsewhere. With the success of mRNA technologies, companies like BioNTech are set to dominate. However, Indian companies have already begun efforts to match pace. Geneva Biopharma has partnered with HDT Biotech and Biological E has collaborated with Providence Therapeutics for mRNA COVID-19 vaccines. Genova has already completed phase two trials and is moving to phase three, which augurs well for access and adaptation to such innovative technologies. There's also the changed reality of countries trying to expand or set up domestic capabilities, reducing the reliance on countries like India. For example, in the US, endo-subsidiary power sterile product plans to expand its Michigan facility to begin the fill-finish manufacturing of both mRNA and adenovirus vaccines. At the same time, vaccine companies world over are facing supply shortages for various components and inputs. And the need for securing the supply chain has led a company like Serum to make upstream and downstream investments. Its alliance with Biocon should help create the right funding and capabilities to maintain a leadership position. While the discovery of new variants of COVID-19, including the newly identified Omicron variant and a need for booster shots, will keep Indian companies relevant, it's imperative to keep a watch on what competitors across the globe are doing. With this, I hand back to Ian to take this discussion forward. Thanks. Okay, thank you, Viva and Andrew. So we're going to move back to East Asia now, to Korea and Japan. And Jungwon, it would be very useful if you can talk to us about some of the key trends that we've seen in partnering and financing by Korean companies so far this year. Thank you, Ian. South Korean pharma and biotech companies saw another year of strong partnering and financing in 2021. Korean companies' out-licensing agreements, particularly across borders, have been increasing over the past several years as they have invested more in novel R&D and building innovative pipelines to seek growth and entry into global markets. Their general strategy is to seek alliances at an early stage, particularly for smaller bioventures with limited R&D funding. Value of deals reached by Korean companies so far this year 
is slightly less than the total out licensing deals of $8.6 billion reported last year. And given the tendency for the deals to increase toward the year end, this year's total out licensing deals could exceed last year's number. Except for several cases, licensed deals and collaborations reached by Korean companies were largely mid-sized, valued at less than $500 million this year. The majority of partnering was around non-COVID-19 assets, with oncology still accounting for the biggest values. New deals involving RNA and cell therapies, as well as drug delivery systems such as antibody drug conjugates were also notable, while Chinese companies continued to be active buyers of Korean assets in line with their heightened global development activity. Meanwhile, financing by Korean pharma and biotech companies also remained active this year, helped by strong investor sentiment in the sector and ample liquidity. After record VC investment in bioventures in the country last year, interest in the biotech and medical sector has remained solid, as investors continue to focus on new drug development amid the prolonged COVID-19 outbreak. In the first nine months of this year, VC investment in Korea's biotech and medical sector totaled 1.2 trillion won, already exceeding the amount for the entire 2020. Of the total VC investment in 2021, bio and medical sector accounted for the second largest at 23% after the ICT service industry's 30%. In addition, Korea's biopharma, medical device, and life science companies had raised $3.9 billion through IPOs as of October 22nd, more than doubling the amount for the entire 2020. Although the number of Korean biotech and pharma IPOs is set to fall short of last year's number, larger scale IPOs have been more frequent this year. And such positive sentiment on bioventure IPOs will likely to continue in 2022 as about a dozen IPOs are already awaiting approvals from the Korea exchange. Now turning to Japan. So Ian, what have been the most notable topics and trends in the Japanese pharma industry over 2021? Yeah, thanks Jungwon. So I think for me, one standout has really been the relative lack of impact of the pandemic on the major companies in the country. So Takeda, which is uh, Japan's largest pharma firm, for instance, has repeatedly stated that it's had virtually no substantive business impact from the pandemic. And although there were some early effects on recruitment into clinical trials, this has now largely abated. So I think that's one key point to notice is that quite a lot of companies have really escaped relatively unscathed in business terms, I think, from the pandemic. Um, I think the other notable area is how the pandemic has prompted a strategic rethink by policymakers in the country, um, particularly of Japan's existing limited capability in the development of vaccines. And uh, I think this was thrown into very sharp focus as the government sought to secure supplies of COVID-19 vaccines during the early stages of the pandemic but found out that essentially all of the near-term options uh, would have to be imported. And of course, there have been some distribution arrangements between local companies, um, including Takeda and overseas manufacturers, as well as as part of that. 
But having said that, um, although the country did get off to a, a quite slow start in its vaccination campaign, things did actually pick up speed very quickly. And it now has one of the, the highest rates of uh, full vaccination within the G7 grouping of countries. And I think while some domestic firms such as Anges are working on vaccines and others, including Shionogi, on oral antivirals for covid they are still lagging somewhat behind the global leaders. And I think, again, the government has really been quite conscious of this and has recently made um, a funding allotment within a very large economic stimulus package that they are planning to, to make, which is worth about 55.7 trillion yen, and that's about $488 billion. Uh, and part of that will be used to support both vaccines and drugs for COVID-19 and also other uses as well. So I think there is a political recognition of the need to support the industry, um, particularly after the pandemic. I think otherwise, budgetary pressures around rising healthcare costs continue to be very much a concern. And this is due in certainly large part to the country's rapidly aging population. And the pressures there continue to draw the attention of the Ministry of Finance. And the research-based pharma industry, meanwhile, continues to be concerned that Japan's continued policies to regularly revise drug reimbursement prices under the National Health Insurance Scheme do not fit with a goal of ensuring a stable system that encourages and rewards innovation. So there continue to be a lot of discussions going around that whole topic and industry groups from the research-based sector have long been calling for a, a wider holistic review that addresses inefficiencies within the current health system and also recognises the broader economic benefits of novel therapies. But I think pricing is pretty much a constant topic in Japan. You know, it's been going on for decades uh, and this push and pull is certainly not unique to the country. And it's actually been playing out in one form or another for very many years. Has there been much of an impact on the regulatory and approval system from the pandemic? Well, I was looking at a list of product approvals so far this fiscal year by Japan's drugs regulator, which is the PMDA, just the other day. And I was actually struck by how normally that these have continued despite the pandemic. So by my reckoning, there have been around 27 approvals, uh, which do include some vaccines and drugs for COVID-19 um, so far this fiscal year, which started on April 1st uh, this year. And that's really maintaining or even exceeding the pace of the last few years. So I think the regulators have really done you know, quite a, a notable job of uh, maintaining that workload in addition to, to all the activity that's been going on around COVID. So while discussions for a renewed formalised system of uh, emergency reviews are ongoing, the current system under existing legislation has actually resulted in some very rapid approvals for new vaccines and drugs for, uh, for COVID. So the antibody therapies, Chugai's Rondaprive and uh, GSK's uh, Zavudi, for instance, they were both approved in Japan after review periods, which were only around three weeks. So, you know, very rapid approvals, much quicker than usual. So to me, this all suggests that the PMDA is continuing to maintain its activity alongside addressing the pandemic. And I do think the 
industry is appreciative of the gains that have been made over the years um, in Japan in terms of the, the approval speeds and reviews and so on. But having said that, I think there are still areas where it would like to see other changes, for instance, around requirements for data in the Japanese language and also regulations pertaining to uh, the use of real world data. So I think those are two areas which are still very much under discussion and certainly where the the research based industry would like to see uh, some more change. But again, looking at the the trends for approval times, uh, both standard and expedited approvals for normal drugs, I'm talking for non-COVID drugs here, have remained fairly constant over the past few years. I think one other thing the pandemic has done is thrown a sharp spotlight on some of the approval delays for the mRNA vaccines uh, in Japan. And these, I think, stemmed in particular from the need to conduct at least some form of clinical trial in the country. And at the time, this received a lot of public attention and media attention because it was seen as adding to the delay um, in availability of the new vaccines, which were already available in in other major countries such as um, the US and Europe. So I think this sort of requirement is something that will be looked at as part of the, the current wider review of the emergency approval system, which I mentioned earlier, and uh, hopefully to allow even faster approvals than at the moment. So these proposals are expected to emerge in some form before the end of the year. And I think the initial focus is going to be probably on ensuring safety of products foremost, while also allowing efficacy to be established on a rolling basis with additional data to be submitted post-approval. So those talks are still very much uh, going on. But I think overall pricing issues aside, my take is that there continues to be very good progress within Japan's regulatory system. But of course, the pharma industry always wants more. So with that, we'll wrap up this podcast for the APAC Insights team, which we hope has given you some useful insights and perspectives from us on the ground in the region in our various markets. And we wish you happy holidays and all the best for 2022.